This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, really love to give you a copy this morning. If you'll raise your hand and leave them up, guys will give you a copy of the Bible so that you can follow along, take that home with you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to read the first three verses. Follow along with me. We're going to be looking at chapter 12 and chapter 13 today. We'll start out just reading the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Everything I want to say was captured in the testimony. <laughs> Tempted just to sit down and return to singing. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and that wasn't planned, by the way. And I believe God is at work in our midst. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. That is God's inspired, infallible word. May he bless it this morning. About six months after my conversion, my girlfriend, Sherry, who's now my wife in children's ministry this morning, and I were 18 years old. We're invited to the basement of some well-meaning Christian friends who were what we called then charismatics. And they wanted to talk to us about something. It was a little bit mysterious. We need to talk. And saved about six months. And we met in their basement. And we learned that though we were converted, we needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that the sign that we had been baptized in the Holy Spirit would be speaking in tongues. Talk about stranger things. We prayed that night for what felt like a very long time, at least to me. I think it was quite a while. And nothing happened. Nothing was really happening. I remember kind of looking around while everybody else had their eyes closed. But they, they coached me up and finally... Coached me and Sherry up, helped us out a little bit, and finally we made a few sounds, and they said, that's it. 
That's speaking in tongues, and they let us go home. (laughs) The good news is I experience no long-lasting psychological damage. (laughs) See? (laughs) I'm fine. And, And I do speak in tongues. More than you all as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 14. I wish you all spoke in tongues. I just don't think you have to. I don't think you have to as evidence that you've experienced the power of the Spirit. The next three Sundays are pastoral messages. We're we're just going to take three Sundays and look at Paul's correspondence to the Corinthians to think about the ongoing work of the Spirit. Today, we'll look at unity and love. The main point today is pursue love. Next week, we'll talk about spiritual gifts proper, and then finally, we'll finish up about financially supporting the local church on January 27th. The burden of this series is we we want our church to be eager eager for experiences of the Spirit, Christian experience through the Word for the glory of God. We want to understand and we want to eagerly desire biblical experiences of the power of the Spirit that truly build up the church. We want to understand the role of the Spirit in the life of the church. We don't want to bypass God's infallible, inerrant, written word. Because we think that more important to the written word is some immediate revelation or leading of the Spirit. Have you ever talked with people who seem to punctuate every paragraph they speak with references to what the Spirit told them, or what God spoke to them? I'm skeptical of this. When I have that experience, it's not my experience. But I do believe in the ongoing work of the Spirit, and I do think I experience the Spirit. You know, what's amazing to me is how Spirit-filled the Puritans were. Nobody's taught me more about the Spirit than the Puritans. One of their greatest theologians, John Owen, said this, He that would utterly separate the Spirit from the Word had as good burn his Bible. That's the way they thought. You need the Spirit and you need the Word. And they were opposed to any Christianity that denied the supernatural, ongoing work of the Spirit. They also oppose the denial of the sufficiency of Scripture, the written word to be interpreted and applied in our lives in the church by the Spirit. They opposed replacing the Bible with immediate revelation. Does it sound relevant? It is. We as a church are eager for Christian experience. I hope the next three weeks will only stir that up. I hope it will stir up a desire for the gifts of the Spirit. 
We want to encourage this for the edification of our church. So we're going to turn to God's written word. Now, my prayer this morning is that we'll experience the power of the Spirit as we do. There's a difference between a knowledge of the truth and a real experience of the power of the truth. I've taken that straight from the Puritans. There is a difference between the knowledge of the Bible, the truth, and a real experience of the power of the gospel in our lives. And what the Spirit does is takes bare knowledge of the truth and transforms it into an experience of the power of God, of the power of God's truth. And we're jealous that every member experienced this. I'm off, I often have people say two things to me that sound very similar. They may not to you, but they do to me. One, I'm not reading the Bible because I'm not benefiting from reading it. Doesn't do much for me. So I, I find I'm not motivated to read the Bible because I don't benefit from it. And this, the second thing that's similar to this that people say to me is, I don't like to fish. <laughs> when someone, I like to fish, someone says that to me, I don't like to fish, I always ask them about their experience. And inevitably, they think of fishing as sitting on the bank of a lake in the hot sun, no one brought water, Bugs are flying all around while they get worms out of a red Hills Brothers coffee can. Put the worms on a hook, get their hands all nasty, no one brought a towel, throw the worm into the lake with a bobber attached, and sit for hours in the hot sun without getting a bite. And when they do catch something, it's, it's an ugly fish. And my, my next question is, do you really think that's what I like to do? <laughs> what I like to do is go to the Beckler River in Montana where you see the backside of the Grand Tetons and you walk past grizzly bears to get there. And you, you walk through a beautiful meadow and see the river and you see beautiful rainbow trout rising to eat aquatic insects knowing that if you're careful and skillful, you can cast that fly right above them and they will eat your fly and your line will go tight and you'll fight a fish for 15 minutes and it's the grandest adventure in this life. <laughs> so don't tell me you don't like fishing until you try that and don't say you don't benefit from God's word without seeking an experience of the power of the Spirit. What you're saying to me, when you say, I don't benefit from reading the Bible, is that as you're reading the Bible, you're not experiencing the power of the Spirit. I'll meet you there. And my hope is that you'll be stirred today to be eager for experiences of the Spirit. What can we learn from these instructions that Paul gives to this crazy local church in Corinth? in the first century. What are some guidance on these issues? Here are three important lessons we'll look at today. And again, this is a three-part series. 
Number one, someone is spiritual. They have the Spirit of God. When they experience the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Someone is spiritual when they experience the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul had no doubt that the church in Corinth in Greece was in one sense by the grace of God, by his undeserved kindness, holy. In one sense, they were holy. They were set apart for God. They were sanctified. They were called by God. They were chosen by God. He had no doubt about it. This church was enriched because of the gospel in Jesus Christ. He says that this local church was God's field, God's building, God's temple, the body of Christ. God was present with the church in Corinth. They lacked no spiritual gift. It was a blessed church. And I want to pause there and say to, to all of you, maybe if you're our guest and you're disillusioned with the church and you find the church a boring topic or you're disinterested in the church or even dislike it, I hope that today and the next couple Sundays will change your mind. Because the church is, is powerful. It's amazing. Not this local church alone, the church, and local expressions of the church. The church in Corinth was full of spiritual life, and it was also full of problems. He couldn't call this church spiritual. He couldn't call this church mature. We, we learn in this letter, and 2 Corinthians, they're immature. He calls them people of the flesh, infants in Christ. They can't spiritually feed on solid spiritual food because they're not ready for it. They need adjustment. They need correction because they need to mature. There are divisions in the church over silly things. There's jealousy. There's strife. They tolerate sexual immorality, and they boast about it. They think that makes them spiritual, that they have a member in the church that's sexually immoral, and they do nothing about it. They're arrogant. They're self-exalting. They think more highly of themselves than they should. They're worldly. They're just like the culture in Corinth. This, these chapters are very relevant to us primarily because they're focused on a local church, just like us. They deal with the Spirit's role among the people of God in the context of a local church. Very relevant. The, the Spirit is at work in local churches. The Spirit is at work, like Zach said this morning, manifesting God's presence in the context of a local church. And Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed. And our hope is that we will be informed as he instructs them. And specifically, these chapters are about the local church meeting, gathering, assembling, just like we're doing this morning. It's about our meeting. It's about what's going on, the role of the Spirit when we come together. There's, there's critical insights here. 
Now he's responding. If you look in verse 1, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Now you will find as you read through these letters, he will say, now concerning Chapter 7, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. They had written Paul a letter, and they had concerns. One of their concerns was spiritual gifts for obvious reasons, if you understand this church. And so, now concerning spiritual gifts, I'm responding to what you wrote me about. And 1 Corinthians 12 is kind of a big picture discussion of the gifts. And then chapter 14 is going to look at more specifically, the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues and New Testament prophecy. In the middle is 1 Corinthians 13. And it's the critical foundation for any local church. The point is love transcends all the gifts and love has to govern their use. And that's what we're going to look at mostly today. If you miss this, you're going to miss what's most important to the Apostle Paul. They, the Corinthians, overvalue the gift of tongues. And it's hindering their mission. So here in verses 1 through 3, he reminds them, first of all, of their former life as pagans or unbelievers, idolaters. And then he contrasts two confessions. One is, Jesus is accursed. And one is, Jesus is Lord. And his point isn't that people are walking around the church saying Jesus is accursed. Obviously, if that was the case, we'd be, he'd be writing about something else. His point is, how can you tell the Spirit is at work? When we confess Christ is Lord, it's the work of the Spirit. You were very aware of that during the testimonies today, weren't you? <laughs> you were very aware that's the work of the Spirit. That's, I, I thought, I can't think of a better illustration. Again, we didn't plan that, but somebody did. When you're saying Jesus is Lord, the Spirit is at work. Paul is saying the, the definitive mark of the Spirit's work in a person's life is that they've grasped the wisdom of Jesus Christ. They've been chosen by God to be in Christ Jesus. God has revealed to them all that He is for them in Jesus Christ. This church valued the speech gifts they thought speaking in tongues was the top. They thought that meant if a person spoke in tongues, they were spiritual. It meant they were baptized in the Spirit. The charismatic movement has suffered because they, they didn't study and understand these chapters. I never want that to be the case for us. We need this discernment. The most important reason they're wrong, according to Paul, is that the saving knowledge of Christ is actually the height of spiritual experience. That was what was so confusing to me. Because, man, I, I just couldn't have gotten any more spiritual <laughs> than when 
I sat up in my bed and said, Jesus. Essentially, I said, Jesus is Lord. Because I saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then six months later, I'm getting a message that I'm not spiritual. It's the height of spiritual experience. The spiritually dead become alive. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says this. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. We were dead in trespasses, made alive, regenerated, born again, spiritually dead, spiritually alive, work of the Spirit through the gospel. That makes a person spiritual. Amen. Amen. A Christian is a new creation in Christ. Now, by way of application, are you bored with your conversion? Are you bored with with having been born again? Are you bored with the gospel message? If so, it grieves the Spirit. It quenches the Spirit in your life. Celebrate your conversion. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself. Think about your conversion. Someone is spiritual when they experience knowing Jesus Christ. Number two lesson, number two, the Spirit is active when there's unity among diverse people in the church. The Spirit is active when there's unity among diverse people in the church. Look down in verse 12. For just as the body is one, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So just as there are various members in a human body, and they're all unified, so also in a local church, diverse Christians are unified in the body of Christ by the power of the Spirit. Paul says, just as the body is one, so it is with Christ. He doesn't say the church. He says Christ, because that's, that's how closely He identifies a local church with Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. And that's why division is unthinkable. 1 Corinthians 1, he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people (laughs) that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And then Paul ends and says, is Christ divided? It's unthinkable. The answer is no. There must not be division in the church. What I missed 
When I began to study these chapters years ago, initially was God's sovereign work in bringing together diverse people in a church. Look, look, look in verse 11. All these are empowered. He's talking about spiritual gifts by one and the same spirit. Okay, so the spirit who apportions to each one individually as he will. Skip down to verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye can't say the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. One member's honored, all rejoice together. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating, Various kinds of tongues. I wonder why we don't go to the basement for the gift of administration. More on that next week. Look, the, the church is God's field. It's God's building. It's God's temple. So we see here verse 11, it makes sense that he apportions as he wills. Verse 18, that he arranges the members in the body as he chose Verse 24, God has so composed the church, the body. Verse 27, 28, God has appointed. He does this. He composes the local church. He appoints the members and their gifts as he wills, as he chooses. And he has a clear purpose in mind for that. It's right here, verse 25 and 26. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, regardless of gifting, regardless of status, position. But there's division in Corinth. And it, it indicates this church needs to be corrected. His purpose is that there would be no division in the church. What he wants to do is what Summer talked about. She walked into the body of Christ and saw a love that got her thinking. There's a business book out called The Power of Moments. And it teaches businesses how to create moments that transform life for people. Defining moments. 
These guys are great business guys, and they understand that certain experiences have extraordinary impact on people. And they're out to help businesses kind of create these memorable moments for the people they serve. And they believe that people and businesses can create these kinds of defining moments in people's lives and transform their life. They're excited about this. They give an example. There's a hotel in Los Angeles called the Magic Castle. On TripAdvisor, it's rated the number two hotel in Los Angeles based on thousands of reviews. But if you saw the photos of the place, you'd find it pretty underwhelming. It looks like a budget motel painted bright yellow. So how could it possibly outrank the number three hotel in Los Angeles, the Four Seasons at Beverly Hills? They say because the magic castle understands the power of moments. By the pool, there's a red phone. If you pick it up, someone answers, Popsicle hotline, may I help you? You can order up popsicles for delivery poolside, and they're brought out on a silver tray by someone wearing white gloves like an English butler. There are countless other things. Hey, that's an idea for popsicles on the lawn this summer. Let's get some white gloves around here, Jake. Countless other things that the Magic Castle does that makes your stay fun, surprising, magical. And so people are willing to forgive an average-looking place if it delivers moments like that. Popsicle hotline. I've been saying that all week. <laughs> That's why we do hot wintery beverages. So that people will be transformed by a real experience of the gospel. That's why we do it. We're trying to reach out to people with the gospel because the church is the one place where lives really are transformed by the grace of God. Finally, number three, and most importantly, love is the greatest mark of the Spirit's work. This is Paul's burden for the Corinthians. Love is the greatest mark of the Spirit's work. They, they lack no spiritual gifts, he says in chapter 1. They got them all. They certainly have tongues. If you walked into their meeting, people would be speaking in tongues everywhere. And so he closes, if you look in chapter 12, the last verse, 31, says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. You got all the gifts, but... Desire, be eager for the higher ones, and I'm going to show you a still more excellent way. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the best-known chapters in the Bible. And now you know the context. Isn't it amazing for some of you to go, wait a minute, 1 Corinthians 13, I, th I think I have heard of that. And... 
the, now you know the context. It's not written just for weddings. It's great for weddings. I've done a lot of weddings. I do weddings. I almost always read 1 Corinthians 13. What am I, stupid? I mean, it's perfect. But we local churches miss out when we take this chapter out of context. It's written for local churches. It's about spiritual gifts. It's about love in the context of a local church. It's aimed directly at the Corinthians. If you want to understand it, understand this local church. Paul is laying out a vision of life that, that sets love as the most important element in the life of a local church. That's when you know the Spirit is at work. When you see love. This is not a message meant to correct this church. <laughs> it's meant to encourage you. You just heard testimony about your love. So I am so honored to be a part of this church. I, I have people every week say, I'm just so thankful for this church. And I just immediately respond, so am I. I'm just thankful to be here. Your love is evidence the Spirit's at work. And love must govern the practice of the gifts. Paul says that without love, spiritual gifts are worthless. That's what he says. So you can have every gift. You can lack no spiritual gift, but if you lack love, they're worthless. A church is unspiritual if it lacks love. Individual members of a local church are unspiritual, immature if they lack love. There is only one definitive mark of the Spirit's presence, and that is love. If, if a church is going to operate in the power of the Spirit, they have to do it in love. The key test is love. And Paul is encouraging the Corinthians and us to desire the spiritual gifts. We want to eagerly desire the gifts But our zeal has to be in the context of Christ-like love. So what is love? That's, that's the question. Is it a second-hand emotion? Not to Paul. And we are given a great description in verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. That's the centerpiece of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. That's in the middle, intentionally. And it's all about spiritual gifts. We need this definition. 
Today, more than ever, love is, is, is an overused term. It's vague. And Paul, the love that Paul has in mind will be on display. It's behavior. This is what you're going to see in a spirit-filled church. This, this church, their spiritual gifts were noticeable, apparent. But even more apparent was their lack of love. That's what he's addressing in that definition. So he begins with two positive attributes of love. Love is patient and kind. They're attributes of God. Clearly taught throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, when asked by Moses to show him his glory, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Paul says in Romans, don't presume on the riches of God's kindness, on his forbearance and his patience. These are, these are two sides of God's attitude towards us as sinners. Through Christ, God has shown himself patient and kind towards us who deserve his righteous anger. And love for others manifests this Christ-like patience. It keeps us from responding irritably in the context of a local church when we are inconvenienced or worse, sinned against in some way. We remember the infinite patience with which the Lord has treated us. Kindness is active. Someone loves somebody. They're, they're kind to them. They express compassion. They have mercy on them. They're tender-hearted like God is towards us because of Christ. And then the second part of verse 4 and 5, Paul says, love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Now he's going to these negative behaviors. And if you want to understand the Corinthians, you can get it from these verses. They envy and boast. They're arrogant and rude. They insist on their own way. They're irritable and resentful. He's thinking of them in his definition of love. Love does not envy. It, it doesn't have this negative feeling when someone else succeeds. The Corinthian church is riddled with envy. In chapter 3, Paul says, you're still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? You're not filled with this powerful spirit of God. You're just aiming, you're just behaving like man. They're immature spiritually. How do you know? They're envious. They envied other spiritual gifts. So there was like this competition for spiritual gifts. Some, some of the people who were rich 
would overindulge in food and drink while some of the poor didn't have enough. Some of the rich would use the legal system in Corinth to, to gain an advantage. And the poor couldn't do this. So the poor was were in the poor folks in the church were envying the rich. And it's all incompatible with love. Love doesn't boast. But the Corinthians, they bragged about their wisdom, their knowledge. They bragged especially about how spiritual they were. It's so ironic. They, they are people of the flesh, but they think they're spiritual because they speak in tongues. And they boasted about it. But it's not, it's not possible to boast and love at the same time. Love is not arrogant. It's not proud. But these guys, are, they, they, they're puffed up. They have an exaggerated view of, of themselves. Like today, if you watch the NFL and, you know, the guys make a great play of some sort and then they, you know, they pound their chest and they rip their shirt open to show that underneath they have a Superman suit on. Big S, I am Superman. That's what the Corinthians were doing. And they couldn't catch. <laughs> so to speak. They, they stunk at spirituality. Love is not rude. 1 Corinthians 14 is going to be all about their rudeness in the meeting. They're rude. He, he wants spiritual gifts in a meeting to be governed by love and deployed decently with order, considering other people. It's amazing today how many people think that is so unspiritual. Well, they've got a problem with the Apostle Paul, and they would love the Corinthian church. Corinthian church is immature of the flesh. They don't care about anything. They just want to speak in tongues in the meeting. And Paul comes in and says, love isn't like that. And the definitive mark of the Spirit is love. And love isn't rude. And so we want to be eager for the spiritual gifts. We want the spiritual gifts to be on display in the meeting we want the broad work of the Spirit to be noticeable. If you're paying attention and discerning this morning, the Spirit is at work all around you, 10,000 ways. But we want it to be done decently and in order, according to Paul. Because love isn't rude. Love doesn't use its gifts to draw attention to itself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I try to please everyone in everything. I, I do, everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. That's love. It's Christ-like. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It's others-oriented. It's creative. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It's like Christ. The gospel means that God...
counts the sinner righteous. He, he doesn't credit them with their sins. And love is most clearly seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He loved us. He lived a perfect life for us. But then he died on the cross to bear our sins. He rose from the dead for us. He lives today to intercede for us. He has sent his spirit today. He's at work all around us because of Christ. That's love. And what the Lord wants is for his field, his building, his temple, the body of Christ to be filled with that kind of self-sacrificing love. And I commend you as a local church. We're going to conclude today with a time of ministry. So we've got teams that are going to come up and they're going to be available for you. Please stand. We're going to have the worship team come. We spent all week praying and we've been praying for this Sunday. If you're here today, we want to pray for you for any and all reasons. We'd love to pray for you if you're not a Christian and you'd like to come to Christ. Come and talk to folks and let us pray for you. If you're here this morning and maybe you say, I want to read the Bible and benefit from it because, this, because of the Spirit's activity, come and be prayed for. Come and be prayed for if you've lacked love this week and you want to be filled with the Spirit and filled with love for others. Come and be prayed for this morning. If you're, if you're burdened in those prophetic words that we heard this morning, the Spirit was speaking to some of you, come and let us pray for you. Before we sing, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We, we love the scriptures, Lord. We know these scriptures are a gift. And we love the presence of your spirit that allows us as we read your word to experience the power of the truth. And now my prayer, Lord, is that as we have this time of prayer, that you would come and powerfully transform us for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.